HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Coming this May from Heritage Radio Network, the surprising stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in one special Brooklyn community that's changing faster by the day. I am 28 years old. I live in Bushwick, Brooklyn. When I moved to Bushwick, when I moved to Brooklyn, I chose Bushwick randomly. We recently opened up in Bushwick. All over Bushwick. Bushwick. Brooklyn, Bushwick. This is Bushwick Podcast, a series that takes you behind the scenes of how people in kitchens, shops, and countless other community spaces create New York City's most dynamic neighborhood. Each week, we step into the journeys that define Bushwick and break down the forces competing to shape its future. These are local stories like you've never heard before. Join us this May, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining us from Malaysia by phone is Dr. Geek Chen Ku. Especially interested in the ways and reasons we gather, Dr. Ku has written extensively on food in public spaces, culinary identity, and cultural appropriation. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Coral. <laughs> so if you and your research aims could be encapsulated in one single dish, what would you be and why? Ooh, that's a difficult <laughs> one. Hard question. Um... Uh, me? Mm-hmm, you. Mm, maybe rojak. And why is that? Uh, so I've chosen a very Malaysian dish, uh, kind of a, a salad uh, that is also also sometimes used to represent Malaysia's multiculturalism. I choose rojak because it's complex and it's got many types of fruit in it, Um so that that all kind of contribute slightly different flavors and tastes and different kinds of tanginess and sweetness. And then the sauce, um, which is uh, salty because of the shrimp paste, uh, sugar, um, and also tamarind, I think, and chili, uh, because I think I've got many aspects uh, to my research as well as to myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what, are the, uh, what are the fruit components? So we use jicama and um, uh, we use pineapple, cucumber, 
sometimes there are other uh, other kind of more local fruits uh, or seasonal fruits like uh, um, it's uh, it's called jambu. It's kind of a watery. Um, watery fruit. It's red, uh, which is nice, and then kind of white inside, and and has a bit of crunch, but isn't as crunchy as the hikama. And then, what else do we put? Star fruit sometimes. And when I was growing up, they used to have these small mangoes that are really sour. They'd have small pieces of that, and if you live and grow up in Penang, some some of the stalls would have pieces of nutmeg, a uh, preserved sweet, you know, sweet nutmeg uh, in it too. Yeah, I think Rojak perfectly uh, sets the tone for our episode and our conversation. So thank you for that. <laughs> so you write that um, your writings are a form of culinary nationalism, but not quite Malaysian pluralism. So can you explain what that means and why you feel this way? Um, I it's not so much all my writings. It's a particular essay I was uh, I, that I I worked on recently that's coming out in a book called Culinary Nationalism in Asia, uh, and in that book I'm talking about modern Malaysian cuisine. So the chef, uh, modern Malaysian cuisine is very much chef-led. So in a way, it's it's more you know elitist. So it's really looking at the fine dining market and trying to do something more experimental and new. Uh, so it differs from pluralism, Malaysian pluralism, because it is um, trying to move away from how we understand. Malaysian cuisine. Um, so, are there any Malaysian cuisines uh, restaurants where you live? Very few. There's one Kopitiam which I feel like has the spotlight, but um, very few. Oh, what's it called? It's called Kopitiam. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I saw that. Um, actually, I had a quick look, and there are like twenty oh, in New really? York alone. I'm just, I'm just completely yeah. not in the know. <laughs> but I think the, the the problem is that they're all little because of land. I suppose the cost of land and rentals and stuff. They're all tiny little places that are spread out, or not so spread out on the island, uh, on Manha- in Manhattan itself. And I had a friend who used to live in Brooklyn, and he told me there was a Penang restaurant there. I'm not sure if it's still open. Mm. So there are. It's just that Malaysian restaurants um, don't get the same kind of attention that Thai. Uh, restaurants or Vietnamese restaurants get or overseas, I think. But when you do go to a Malaysian restaurant, what do you what do you order, and you know what's your understanding of Malaysian food? Super basic. Um, I went to Malaysia when I was really young because my family friends Malaysian, and um, uh-huh. yeah, I just remember having the best seafood. I was so so young, so so young. Um, I remember the shrimps were uh-huh. as large as lobsters, and that was what I remembered. <laughs> okay. So, but so Malaysian Malaysian food is plural in the sense that it reflects Malaysia's multicultural right. uh, diversity. So you have um, Malay food. So, so you, things like satay and rendang. Um, rendang, I'm sure you probably know, it's a kind of beef curry um, that's, yeah, that is not like super, that's not soupy, but more 
thick and um, traditionally the beef rendang originates from Sumatra. So in Malaysia, we've got um, migrants, you know, from around the region, um, and they brought their food with them. So we've got Malay food, we've got Chinese. So the Chinese and Indians were uh, brought in uh, to work. Uh, under the British, uh, in you know the Chinese mostly um, in trade. Actually, the Chinese had been there longer before the British came, but most of them came in in the late 1800s uh, to work in the tin mines. Uh, and then uh, the Indians also were brought in from southern India to work in the um, in the rubber plantations. Mm-hmm. So these people, of course, brought their cuisines with them. And oftentimes, when you go to a Malaysian restaurant uh, overseas, uh, you'll see that there'll be a few... It's it's hard, like, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what kind of cuisine uh, Malaysian food is um, when you are only familiar with, let's say, Chinese restaurants or Indian restaurants um, or Thai, which is very, very kind of unique. Um, Because we are multicultural. Okay, so like I have a friend in Germany and she opened uh, a Malaysian restaurant and she said it took her eight years to educate Germans mm-hmm. about what Malaysian food is. Because the first time they come, they're like, well, what kind of restaurant is this? Is this? It's not quite Indian. It's not quite Chinese. It's got like everything thrown in. Like, couldn't you be original? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So it's this... Actually, it's this kind of multiculturalism in our menus that make us um, difficult to market at the same time as it's also, I think, our strength. Uh, so, so Malaysian food is often known to be you know, a little bit of everything, like a bit of Indian food. So in Malaysian restaurants, overseas, you see roti chanai uh, on the menu and maybe um, Indian, uh, Indian noodles of fried, fried Indian noodles. Okay, so that the Indian noodles is a very uh, Malaysian thing because you don't get fried Indian noodles in India. Mm-hmm. No, it's because when um, t- migrants came from Tamil Nadu, in, uh, Malay, these would be Indian Muslims or Tamil Muslims coming. Um, they actually incorporated noodles and tofu into and, and made this dish with spices so it's something that's very Malaysian that everybody eats um, mm-hmm. so then you also have Chinese dishes or Malaysian Chinese dishes so Malaysian Chinese dishes if you're familiar with Chinese food um, it's also quite distinct um, they are sort of Cantonese style dishes but they're also Malaysian Chinese dishes that originate from Malaysia through this sort of migrant experience. So so something like the bakut there, which is a herbal pork soup, um, originates from Malaysia. So Singaporeans also like to claim it um, as their own. Um, so going back to modern Malaysian cuisine, it's different because they're trying to move away from how Malaysian uh, food is, you know, multicultural and reflects Malays, Malay, Chinese, Indian, and Eurasian, and you know, these people. But these people's migrant food—they're trying to 
boil it down to ingredients. So ingredients that you can find in Malaysia, specifically herbs and plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get and into... Seafood. Oh, sorry. Just before we get into modern, um, because Malaysian or what is understood to be Malaysian cuisine is so inherently mixed and appropriative, um, are Malaysians as sensitive to cultural appropriation as I feel like we are here in America? Um, we're only sensitive when other nations claim our food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, um, I think I think you might have. Uh, I think you, in your interview with Andrew Tom in a previous episode on hawker food, um, Singapore is going up, uh, trying to claim, uh, trying to claim that hawker food is their heritage under the UNESCO listing and Malaysians are kind of up in arms because some of the dishes that they're claiming are actually actually originated from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's now um, there's now an, a proposal in the Penang state government when they have their you know, parliament or whatever, and and some backbenchers and people are talking about how Penang should try and do a joint bid with Singapore to claim hawker food um, as equally our own. Because I think there's uh, after the the after the, um, the ruckus that Malaysians kicked up, there's also a proposal. Okay, we'll include Malaysia, so it'd be like Singapore and Malaysia. But I think some of the Penang uh, politicians are saying, well, some of these dishes are actually specifically more Penang than all over um, Malaysia. Why not let's be more, much more specific about it and say that it's and claim it for Penang? So we'll see. I think it's a very much a political move. Um, so in that sense, yes, uh, cultural appropriation only matters uh, when uh, not uh, when it's outside the nation the nation mm-hmm. okay so malays and chinese and indians are i think not as sensitive about each taking um or adopting uh, each other's food but they are more sensitive when it's another nation claiming that food as theirs mm-hmm. yeah speaking about food being a way we um, demonstrate power whether over ourselves and our bodies by taking on an extreme diet or over others like um, claiming Singapore claiming this as a heritage immaterial heritage um, you also talk about the tension between hosts versus guests um, how some communities have more agency in certain food spaces than others so can you explain this too oh okay so um, it's it's actually not my it's actually an idea uh, from uh, a concept uh, from an anthropologist. Um, I keep forgetting his name, uh, but basically, my co-author and I, uh, Jean Drew, and and I, in our book, eating together, um, food, space, and identity in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, we're we're looking at how people can eat together, you know, a sense of having a sense of commonality where people of different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, or class backgrounds can come and eat together. In Malaysia, it's particularly difficult because the majority uh, ethnic population is Muslim Malay, and Muslims, uh, uh, Malays are 
how do you say that? Malays are constitutionally defined as Muslims, so they can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. And from the 70s onwards, there's a kind of uh, there, there, there's a, there's a kind of resurgent um, re- awakening that they that Malay Muslims have not been strict enough uh, in observing uh, halal. You know, halal strictures. Uh, This happened because of what's happening in Iran, 1979, um, with the rise of the Ayatollah, and yeah, and so there's a kind of missionary zeal in making Muslims, making Malay Muslims, much more uh, conscientious uh, about their not so much spirituality, but their religious. yeah, about being better Muslims. Okay, so so what you then have is a much stronger observation of halal. So halal is just um, a term that means uh, what can and cannot be eaten. And it's not just eaten, actually, but, you know, what can and cannot be eaten um, for Muslims. So this would be pork, alcohol, and also the process of getting that food onto the table has to be halal. Okay, so it has to be clean from impurities like, you know, uh, animal blood and urine, uh, feces. So the, the cook in the kitchen has to be a Muslim. And today, um, because the Malaysian government has been uh, promoting halal, the halal industry. Uh, it's a, a kind of certification that the government, um, or the, 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 the well, Malaysian government, I suppose, um, gives out to food businesses uh, and to certify that they are halal in order for Muslims to feel uh, confident that, oh, I can go and eat there and the food there will be halal. You know, so you make sure that the the chickens and the beef and the lamb whatever, are, are kind of slaughtered according to the Muslim way. Mm-hmm. So that's another uh, way to that's another uh, that's another way to observe halal for food. So wait, let me see. Where was I? Mm. So how? How, so this is one way halal kind of uh, means that the Chinese who eat pork um, and the Indians uh, who, if they're Christians or whatnot, who also eat pork, um, in order to be together, in order for Muslims and non-Muslims to eat together, we would have to eat at a halal eatery or at um, Malay's house uh, because it's becoming, because uh, Malay Muslims are becoming much more, um, much more religious, uh, much more observant of halal. Uh, they are fearful of eating in places that are not halal, even though they themselves would not be eating pork or, you know, drinking alcohol mm-hmm. in restaurants that do serve those things or in restaurants that don't have that halal certificate at the front door. So in so this also this also um, feeds into, for example, uh, when when non-Muslim Malaysians invite their Muslim friends over to their house for their religious 
festival or you know just to come and eat um, the more religious uh, the ones who want to observe uh, or, or more conservative um, Muslims will be quite reluctant to eat anything at that person's house they might you know maybe have a drink uh, that's in a box or you know, because they're worried that the food that's cooked uh, to, to them uh, will be cooked in pots that have been cooking you know pork or whatever so if you actually follow that very very strictly that pot has to be you know clean with sand particular sand or whatever for like seven times uh, before it's considered pure or clean you know so so in order to like not have to deal with that then uh, Muslims don't actually uh, attend uh, non-Muslim religious festivals as much anymore these days mm-hmm. particularly the ones who are more conservative mm-hmm. and so what uh, what we then have is that Muslims can host non-Muslims because you know those who eat everything can go and eat in a Malay household um, but the non-Muslims cannot host the Muslims um, and therefore where as migrant as people with migrant ancestry considered always as guests in this land in, in Malaysia mm-hmm. whereas the Malays who are considered um, sons of the soil you know Bumiputra they have this status called Bumiputra they are then seen as the perpetual host and we are the perpetual guest do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. and so is this increase in halalization of food um, does that figure forth in modern Malaysian cuisine? no <laughs> no, because let's see, because the chefs, um, because he, we're talking about fine dining here, and if you only do halal, it means you can't sell alcohol. Mm. You know, so um, and that also means, and actually, if you look at who who are frequent diners, who are the ones who are who can afford to eat at fine dining. Uh, who are the ones who eat out the most? Um, they're actually well, mainly the Chinese. Mm. So, if you were to say, uh, if you were to limit the modern Malaysian cuisine to halal only, then that would mean that you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're already narrowing down the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that that doesn't mean that. Muslims don't go uh, it's just that the liberal Muslims would go uh, but some but see so there are different degrees of accommodating Muslims so in these restaurants they wouldn't actually have pork sometimes on their menu okay, they would have chicken and, and maybe duck and they would also be they would also have vegetarian options but they sell alcohol so it's up to the individual, whether they want to go there or not, but it won't have a halal certificate in the front door. Mm-hmm. So then who or what is quote-unquote modern Malaysian? Uh, who um, or what? Let's do what is easier. <laughs> <coughs> modern, modern Malaysian um, cuisine is chef-led and it's it's very much influenced by Noma and the kind of, you know, back to the roots, local, <clears throat> uh, fresh, and the emphasis on local fresh ingredients. So, 
um, not everybody does that. So since I started writing on it about two years ago, um, like today, there's more than just one chef, uh, more than just Darren Chiu, who are <clears throat> proponents of modern Malaysian cuisine. So uh, now I can see at least three or more of these restaurants that focus on modern Malaysian cuisine and focus on local ingredients uh, first. Though I think that it's hard to just use local ingredients. So the local ingredients that most people focus on are herbs. Um, And because Malaysia is traditionally, um, the traditional things that people eat in Malaysia, you know, for centuries would be seafood because we are a peninsula and in East Malaysia and a kind of island. Um, so seafood is very big. And so the, the emphasis is on seafood and even um, preserved seafood. Right? So you like your fish sauces in Thailand and in Vietnam. Uh, we have the, the shrimp paste. Uh, we, have, we have a kind of fish sauce, uh, but it's actually... It's actually called budus. It's also kind of a preserved um, fish, but it's watery. Um, it's a kind of fish or shrimp paste sauce. And we have several of that from the east coast of Kelantan and Trengganu, um, budu. So they, you can try to incorporate those kind of preserved shrimpy type sauces in flavor and flavors in your food. So... If I were to define um, not so much who, but what is modern Malaysian food, yeah, that would, it would still be traditionally the kinds of flavors that Malaysians are used to. Mm-hmm. And so, and some of the ingredients that are herbal. Mm-hmm. And though the ingredients may be inherent to Malaysian cuisine and the environment, um, you write that many of the techniques are European or French or even, you say, inspired by Noma. And so why is this somewhat problematic that um, modern Malaysian cuisine still has to kind of be defined to exist within a Western narrative? I know it is problematic. I mean, as a kind of post-colonial scholar, mm-hmm. um, it's it's the kind of... It's Malaysian mindsets um, also have to decolonize or decolonialize, Um, partly because if you were to ask people to pay, you know, 300 ringgit, uh, that's, I don't know, like, okay, so 400 ringgit, let's say, okay, 400 ringgit is like 100 USD. Um, If you were to get people to pay that for local ingredients, and flavors that they think that that they can get on the street uh, for way less, then we have a problem, you know, because a lot of people will be like, but those ingredients, I could get that for a tenth of the price or a third of the price. Why would I fork out so much money? Well, it's not that they're doing this just so that they could, you know, get lots of money. It's experimenting um, with local ingredients and local flavors, but changing the shape of the stuff we're familiar with. You know, so you do that particularly with, um, what do you call it? Um, 
modern techniques, modern scientific techniques. You know, they like doing this um, foam, like doing foam or fermentation, uh, which you borrow from, you know, Korea or Chinese, traditionally Korean or traditionally Chinese or even Japanese methods. So it's changing the shape of the things we understand and not serving the same ingredients in the same way that you could get um, as, you know, like home cooking or as street food. Mm-hmm. So what would need to happen to make those quote-unquote authentic or traditional methods um, worth the money or worth it to the high-paying customer? I think, I think this is how I see it. I don't see that the same people who are, who are eating the, you know, our much more affordable food being the ones going to the fine dining places, I think that the mark that these chefs are making uh, is at that fine cuisine, fine dining um, level. So, for example, um, Darren Chiu, as a Malaysian chef, made it onto the top 50 Asia's best uh, restaurants or chefs. Um, Dewaka, uh, the restaurant that he runs, though he's very, um, very emphatic about saying that it's much, very much a team effort because, you know, they experiment as a group uh, to come up with these dishes. So that, so Dewakan got placed at number 48 out of 50. And if you actually look at the restaurants on that list, you know, Asia's best restaurants, and the top is actually a French restaurant led by a French chef in Singapore. And if you look at, you know, a lot of those restaurants, you know, some that are based out in in Shanghai, they're actually led by European chefs and they could be doing French cuisine with an Asian twist, but not many of them are proudly selling their ethnic food or their national cuisine, you know? Yeah. Which I think is interesting, right? Because it then shows you that the Asian market is still very much colonized. We still think about, uh, oh, if we're going to spend this much money, it's got to be Western food. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I think that it's important that you focus on local ingredients, but at that kind of level, at that fine dining level, um, because you're making a mark by saying, look, Malaysian cuisine can be uh, a top restaurant for its own sake. You know, it doesn't have to be a European um, restaurant. So there's some um, focusing on local ingredients. And there are other people who call their food modern Malaysian because they use French techniques and the food then comes out looking more French than Malaysian. Uh, So I think that has to be clear that these restaurants are different because they actually, uh, people, um, the work that Darren is doing or Raymond, uh, Tom and Beta, and I think there's a new one uh, called uh, Atas um, as well. They are focusing on local ingredients much more. Mm-hmm. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. 
Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So we were just discussing the deployment of French techniques and ingredients in modern Malaysian food. And um, very quickly with our last 10 minutes, if you could give an explanation um, on how this is also happening with South, South Korean food and kind of having to translate that for a Western narrative. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> Big topic. Where? Like in Korean food in general? <laughs> you talk about the Hansik globalization campaign. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um... Actually, the Hansik globalization campaign, um, hmm. in Malaysia, it's still much more traditional. And I think that trying to, the, the, the South Korean government has been uh, trying to promote uh, Korean food to be on the global stage as, you know, the top five. And this was actually a campaign that started under the previous, wait, two governments ago. <laughs> than the previous one. Uh, and it was meant, it, at that time, it would be like 2012 or 14, I forget. Um, at, no, yeah, I started quite early and they had a long-term plan. Um, let's just say they haven't quite succeeded. Uh, so in their, in their campaign, they targeted not just um, local, not just Korean barbecue, they target different levels. So you have, you know, trying to promote Korean barbecue and bibimbap and sort of traditional Korean dishes. They also tried to promote uh, royal cuisine, royal uh, Korean cuisine. And then they also focused on um, Korean chefs uh, overseas in Western countries, Europe and the U.S., who are doing uh, modern um, food or trying with a Korean twist. Or they're also trying to target French chefs to try and get them to use Korean ingredients or Korean techniques in their food. Uh, actually, you know, these government promotion things, they're basically, they have an agenda, right? It's not a kind of, we're so proud of our culture and we want you to, we want you to share it. It's also meant to try to promote um, their industry and their tourism and their products overseas, you know, to kind of export their products overseas. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you Can say this. Question? You say yeah, this campaign overlooks some major issues that are happening locally. And which are those issues? Um, the the they had so for example in Malaysia, uh, my argument is that. In my uh, gastronomic uh, essay, my argument is that 
the campaign is very much let out of South Korea, so it doesn't really take into consideration how South Korean food is, or, well, also North Korean food as well, how South Korean food is localized or adapted in Malaysia, and it doesn't actually consider the market so much in Malaysia. So if they did that, they would be much more sensitive and attuned to local audiences. So for example, they put out like uh, a restaurant guide of Korean, uh, Korean restaurant guide in Malaysia uh, in, and, uh, or in KL and Jakarta. So it's like a joint um, guidebook that, ha- that featured, I'm not sure if it's like 20 restaurants in KL and 20 restaurants in Jakarta. And they have like an index section and they try to be sensitive by having the guidebook be in bilingual or trilingual. Okay, so the, for the Malaysian section, they have uh, it in Malay and then in Korean and then in English. Uh, and the interesting thing is that they don't realize that if your Malay audience reading this book, you probably would want to know if it's halal or not. You know, so in the index, you should actually have a, um, you know, a, a line that's, uh, that tells people if that particular restaurant is halal or not. So they didn't have that in mind, and they don't realize that most of the people frequenting Korean restaurants are actually Chinese Malaysians. Like, so to have it in Malay um, assumes that the readers would be reading in Malay. But actually, um, if they're Chinese, they're probably reading it in English or in Chinese mm-hmm. first rather than reading it in Malay because Malaysia is very racialized. Um, we're split because of certain policies that privilege uh, and prioritize Malays, um, that prioritize the Malay language as the national language, as, the, as Malaysia's official language. You know? so, so they, have, they make these gaps um, in coming up with the restaurant guide, even though they get the reviewers who are Malaysians, you know. So those are little things. And also they don't consider that they're not really um, giving incentives to um, Korean migrants in Malaysia who open up Korean restaurants, right? They're not giving them, uh, they're not helping them to promote um, their restaurants or helping them set up restaurants uh, in Malaysia. And the people I interviewed, the Koreans I interviewed who run these restaurants feel that it's probably that if the government were to help anybody, they would be helping the big conglomerates Mm -hmm. uh, who are opening restaurants overseas, but who also sell products, etc. They're the big, they're the big chaebols, you know, and they're just a few, a handful of them, rather than these of mom and pop stores. It seems like there's this common thread in your writing where you're attempting to sort out or discover public spaces tangible and not, where we all can eat together. Um, how are spaces like these created and how can they be effective instead of um, like this pamphlet just falling flat? Mm-hmm. How, um, how can they cre- be created? Mm-hmm. I think in Malaysia right now, you, they would probably have to be halal. So some of the Korean um, restaurant operators I talked to are very much aware of that. Some Actually, some Korean restaurants have become halal uh, in order to welcome um, Malay uh, Muslims or Muslims 
Muslim customers. And since I wrote that article, which was a few years ago when I did the research, the Korean Koreans, well, Korean dramas, Korean pop bands, um, the Korean wave is huge in Malaysia. Like you have these boy bands come, and there's a lot of fans who go, uh, and some fans would actually go to Korea and visit these places and go to attend a concert, things like that. So. They're, so the Korean restaurants are very much aware of the influence of um, pop, K-pop in Malaysia. And it's because of K-pop that these restaurants have an appeal, uh, K-dramas, that these restaurants have an appeal. So they now know that they have to kind of become halal to appeal to the audience uh, so gradually you're seeing more of, of these sort of halal places, but not all because, you know, pork is just as important to Koreans, I think, as they are to Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with modern Malaysian food, how to create a cuisine that is fully representative of the people it's claiming to represent and um, serving the people it represents? I don't think that they claim to represent the different ethnicities. I think what um, Darren Teo is, you know, he's a very thoughtful chef. You know, he's he's thinking about the history. He reads a lot. Um, and he's actually kind of going back to the roots, you know, what, um, what was there? What did people eat before migrants came, you know, before the Chinese and the Indians came, before people from before, you know, Indonesia, uh, before people from the other islands came, right? what did the indigenous people, the Orang Asli, the Orang Asal, eat? Um, and maybe it's not a lot, you know, tubers, uh, they had to use their herbal, um, but so it's really trying to look at indigenous people's cuisine and, or indigenous people's ingredients and trying to incorporate that into these dishes. Uh, And these indigenous cuisine or indigenous um, ingredients were also used by Malays. And Orang Asli also kind of incorporated uh, later ingredients, uh, whether it's brought by Malays or Chinese, etc. So like, if you think about it, uh, it's a tropical country. You can't really grow garlic. So what did indigenous people use to kind of flavor their food or their meat? They use a, a leaf called down somomo, which actually smells like, um, it smells like this smelly insect. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called in English, but in Malay it's called pijat. Uh, you know, sometimes there's this insect, I don't know if you have it in the States, and you kind of, you kind of kill it by pressing it, and then you smell your fingers and it's got this like, real strong smell it has that smell mm. but when you cook it you know it maybe you know the smell kind of doesn't sort of stay there and, and it flavors the food mm. so that was what people or indigenous people use in their food before we started to import garlic uh, and onions and stuff like that and now of course garlic and onions have become a staple in our recipes and when I went recently to an indigenous 
village, um, and we had a food tour, and they cooked their food for us in their traditional ways. They will also be uh, busy peeling garlic. You know? mm-hmm. So you can see how uh, it's difficult to kind of go back to this sort of purest, authentic origin from 200, 300 years ago before the British came, before the migrant, uh, you know, Chinese and Indians came. Um, because we use all these things and we adapt the stuff that comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, like tomatoes, right? Tomatoes originated from Latin America, uh, but they were brought to Malaya, uh, to the peninsula, via trade and the Portuguese, etc. That was was a perfectly short and sweet intro to Malaysian cuisine, and now I'm going to run off and try to find what that insect is. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.